Well, if you would, tonight, open up your copy of Scripture to James 5. We did not forget to do an offering. We're going to have an offering at the end here in light of the passage that we're about to hear preached. And uh, we're going to resume our study in James. Uh, We began it last fall, and then uh, Christmas happened, and we had to pause for a moment, but we're back in it tonight, Uh, James chapter 5. Tonight we'll be hearing... um, a sermon entitled Cruciform Bank Accounts. I'm, I'm thankful for the opportunity to preach. I'm thankful for Pastor David. I'm thankful that, uh, that he did get to go on that cruise. And I really hope that we as a congregation never let him live the fact down that he went on a cruise that we gave him without a birth certificate or a passport. And uh, they wouldn't let him go last year. But they were gracious, and so they let him go this year. Uh, but that is just something that we should never let Pastor David live down. <laughs> He'll say it's not his fault, but we know otherwise. If you would stand in honor of the reading of God's holy scripture from James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. James writes to the church, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. He says, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so thankful for your word tonight. I'm so thankful for the way your word has already ministered to us. God, as we heard Psalm 73 read in Matthew 6, God, I'm thankful that uh, you call us to surrender all, and that includes our, our money and our view of riches. And I pray tonight that, uh, that you would transform the way we view riches, that you would help us to be content and to trust in you and in you alone. Father, thank you for this reminder from James. I pray that you would open our hearts to its meaning and would apply its truth to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Silas James. That's my youngest son. He is the typical youngest son. Uh, I have three sons, and his two older brothers don't, don't let him have a word in edgewise, and they don't let him have much of anything. So whatever Silas gets, he has to fight to get. And whatever he has, he has to fight to keep, right? Um, he's got two older brothers who, who are stronger and uh, give him all kinds of grief. It was about five months ago that Silas James, my little boy, turned five years old. And uh, he got for his, his gift that year, uh, well, I gave him a few things, and Janelle gave him a few things, and his grandparents gave him a few things, but he got in the mail something very special to him from his great-grandmother. And we don't get to see her very often. She lives in Florida, but she always sends uh, some, a little bit of money to their, her grandchildren. It usually corresponds with their age. So Silas, who just turned five, 
received from his great-grandmother a crisp $5 bill. And you would have thought that was the, the best gift anybody had ever given him. It far surpassed even the baseball glove, the baseball glove that his dad gave him. Uh, he held on to that $5 bill for, his, for dear life. The whole night, it was, it was, it was amazing to see. Uh, I, I marveled at it, and I just kept watching him throughout the evening. He, he had the $5 bill in one hand and a fork in the other as we sang happy birthday to him, and he blew out the candle. And he would not let go of it. He was, he was unwrapping gifts with one hand because he would not let go of the $5 bill that his great-grandmother had, gave him, had given him. And uh, even that night, as I wished him a final happy birthday and told him that I loved him and gave him a kiss goodnight, he is in his bed, he's all curled up, and I go down to hug him goodnight. And he didn't, he didn't reciprocate the hug. He just sat there like this in his bed, and I'm like, I'm like hugging a corpse, you know. I'm like, okay, well, you can hug me back, you know. And I notice that he's, he's still clutching something, so I lift off the blankets, and he's still sitting there in his bed that night going to bed with a death grip on a crisp $5 bill. I couldn't help but marvel at how young and age our propensity to cling to wealth, to riches, to money really begins. Here's a five-year-old who, in his mind, is the richest kid in the world because of the five dollars that he holds. He holds in his hand uh, the key to happiness, and to lose it would be to lose, would lose everything. Uh, and the same point can be said of the seven billion sinners who walk the face of this earth. Uh, we are all, in some way, just like little Silas James. Uh, we all tend to trust in our own bank accounts. We, we tend to trust in our own possessions. We trust in the clothes that we wear, the numbers in our bank accounts. And, you know, I find it extremely ironic that on the, the face of every bill that we have in our pocket uh, is the slogan, In God We Trust. And it's ironic because... Uh, most of the time, the people that hold those bills that say, in God we trust, don't trust in God at all. They trust more in that piece of paper, that piece of currency, instead of the God that that currency proclaims. We're all a little bit like Silas James. We're quick to transfer our trust to wealth. And so, as we come to James, it's no surprise that James, in a letter uh, that we have uh, given the title Cruciform Wisdom to our message series, and this, this letter of cruciform or cross-shaped wisdom to the church, he intentionally and directly addresses the way we as believers in Jesus Christ should think about wealth. Uh, he, he starts right away in chapter 1, and he reminds the rich that their riches are, are transient. They're, they're going to pass away just like the flower fades, just like the the grass withers, that, that wealth will also pass away. He reminds the church not to think like the world thinks and to show favoritism toward those that, that appear rich. He says if a man who, who has a nice ring and a, and, a, and a nice set of clothes comes in, don't set him in a seat of honor and say to the poor man, here you sit over here on the floor. Uh, because uh, James calls us to cruciform wisdom, cross-shaped wisdom. The cross does not... Uh, does not show favoritism. <laughs> Praise God. And, and even the, the text right before our text tonight in chapter 5, the, the text that was preached last winter, um, 
before this text, the, 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 the passage in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, it talks about, uh, James reminds the church, these 12 tribes scattered over the, uh, over the earth, of the dangers of pursuing riches, specifically profit, he specifically says in verse 13, apart from the submission of the will of God. Uh, recognizing it's God who is sovereign, who is transcendent, not, not us. So therefore, boasting in plans or boasting in fortunes made is evil because one who does so boasts without giving the glory to whom glory is due. He glories in himself. And cruciform wisdom, cruciform plans in this case, uh, give glory to Christ. And so James continues his discussion of wealth as we've seen it already discussed multiple times in the book of James, by bringing some scathing indictments on the rich. It appears as if, and, and most commentators that I've read of are in agreement here, that for, for just a moment, James has directed his writing to an entirely different audience. He, he writes pronouncing these frightening judgments on unbelieving wealthy landowners. We'll see them specifically identified in verse 4 in just a moment. But he writes in full knowledge that the church will also read and hear these indictments. So James, while directly addressing the unbelieving wealthy, knows that the church, that we need to hear, that we need to be warned of their fate, that we need to be encouraged uh, that, that those who live in wicked self-indulgence will receive their just reward. Now, I want to carefully qualify the audience here, uh, the audience that James is addressing, because it's, a specific, it's obvious to me he has a specific audience in his mind. It's, he's not sort of generically attacking every rich. Look how he begins. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. I want to be clear as we, as we start that James is not generically attacking every rich person in the world. And the Bible doesn't teach uh, that wealth is evil. You know, I think one of the most incorrectly quoted verses in all of Scripture is that verse in, in 1 Timothy 6.10. Uh, you, you hear a lot of people misquote it. They say, you know, money's the root of all evil. They just say it like that. And that's not what it says at all, is it? Paul says to Timothy, uh, the, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Um, Jesus did not teach that to have money was to be evil, but he did warn those that have a lot of money, that it would be greatly difficult for them to trust in Him. It would be greatly difficult for them to enter the kingdom. Do you remember the, uh, the rich young ruler who came to Jesus with a question? He said, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And as the conversation goes, it appears that he's, he's got it all together. He's kept the law, every jot and tittle. But Jesus knew that there was something that was, that was holding his affections more so than his love for God. And so what did he tell the, the rich young ruler? Go, sell your possessions, and give the proceeds to the poor. And that rich young ruler left, and the Bible says he was greatly saddened, full of sorrow, because he was a man of great wealth. Um, the story continues in Mark 10. <clears throat> Mark 10, 23 through 27 and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Again, in, in uh, the passage that Casey read earlier, just, just, just immediately before that, the Sermon on the Mount, which James uh, has alluded to many times in his letter to the church, it says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So the Bible's clear. Wealth is not evil, but it's dangerous. And its danger here in James is on full display as James sort of lowers the boom on these unbelieving rich with, with we'll see, four rapid-fire indictments in our text. Uh, he says, come, let's just take a look at verse 1. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Um, he says, he calls them, these unbelieving rich, to wail, to lament. The Greek word here used is an onomatopoetic word. It's a word that sounds like what it describes, like bang or crash. Uh, it's a word that sounds, and I'm not going to try to pronounce it, it sounds like a howl, a wail, okay? Uh, and, and James is calling these rich, unbelieving men to weep and to wail preemptively because of the judgment of God that they will face in the life to come. They have today indulged in luxurious lifestyles, but the pleasures they have known today pale in comparison to the miseries that they will know on the great day of judgment. And James uses the plural form of the word misery here. He says miseries as if to describe the waves of misery, the misery upon misery that are coming because of these four indictments that he's about to reveal. Four charges brought against the rich, the unbelieving rich. And the first of which that I want us to see tonight is a crossless hoarding. A crossless hoarding. Let's take a look at verses 1 through 3. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. So James, in the first of many blows, reveals a crossless hoarding. These, these rich men have amassed great fortunes, great wealth, and they've hoarded it for their own security, their own pleasure, their own selfish, luxurious lifestyle. You know, have you ever seen the show on TV? It's, it's, uh, it's called Hoarding, Buried Alive. You, you ever seen that show? My wife and I sit and watch that show on, on occasion. She can't stand it because it's disgusting. But um, we watch that show in utter disbelief at... Uh, at the, at the despicableness of sin, really. Uh, it's a show, if you haven't seen it, of, of people, they, they go into their homes, and usually it's family members concerned about a loved one, and they go into the home, and the, the home is literally chuck full of, of stuff. It could be nice stuff, it most often is just trash, garbage. 
and uh, they are so loving their possessions, their, their things on this earth, that they cannot bring themselves to throw them away. And it's amazing to see the first step in, in healing is to throw that first piece of garbage away. And, and most often the people are just shaking and they're like, I can't do it, I can't do it. And it's just like the, the you know, just worthless trash. Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating window in the, into the depravity of our own souls to trust in possessions. Uh, and, and, and inevitably, uh, most of those possessions, that stuff, finds itself in the trash heap. And James's point here in, in the verse 3 verses is that the hoarded wealth of the rich here in chapter 5 will ultimately end up in the same place. Uh, he alludes here to three forms of wealth in the day. Uh, food, clothing, and precious metals. He said, your food is rotting. Your clothes, they're moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver, they're rusted. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus told a parable of a man exactly like the one James is describing here in our text. He said, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? for I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God has said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Those who lay up treasure for themselves in the last day will see their precious wealth for what it really is, and that is evidence against them before a holy God. And just like the mold ate the food, and the, the moths ate up the clothes, and just like the rust ate up the gold and the silver, the wealth will eat you up like fire, the text says, on the great day of the Lord. We see here a crossless hoarding, an accumulation of material possessions that will ultimately pass away and that will ultimately consume you with them. I love Matthew 6. It so relates, well, uh, re relates so well with uh, our text tonight. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. James reveals that first blow, that first indictment as a crossless hoarding. And the second of these four heavy blows that James rains down on the rich is found in verse 4. It's a crossless fraud. Let's take a look at verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. James here indicts the rich for, for breaking an age-old law. He cites here from uh, Leviticus 19, verse 13, which reads, Do not defraud your neighbor or rob him. Do not hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. And also in Deuteronomy 24, it says, Do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy, 
whether he is a brother Israelite or an alien living in one of your towns, pay him his wages each day before sunset because he's poor and is counting on it. Otherwise, he may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. What we have here in James 5 is the cries of those whom uh, have been defrauded of their wages. They are, they are going up before the Lord. Uh, James reveals this great fraud going on here. The, the rich landowners are not paying the poor laborers their wages. And therefore, the text says in verse 4 uh, that two different cries are going up. Two different cries. One from the wages themselves. They are going up before the Lord, uh, much like the blood of Abel that cried out from the ground. And also, secondly, the, the cries of the, the laborers themselves. Put yourself in their shoes for just a moment. What are they to do? They have a, a rich, wealthy, powerful landowner. They are poor, powerless, seemingly defenseless. And the only thing they can do in this culture is to cry out to cry out to the Lord, and that's exactly what they have done. And, and I love what the text says. It's so encouraging to, to probably many in the church who, who were undergoing such circumstances. Look who is listening to their cries at the end of verse 4. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. I love that. It's one of my favorite names for God in the Scriptures. It's a, it's a name that we sing in uh, the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, Lord Sabaoth. It means Lord of hosts, Lord of armies. Uh, while it seems as if they are defenseless, in reality, the, the great defender is their defense. He stands with his ranks, his hosts of angels behind him, ready to avenge the fraud brought on by the rich. And I'm sure that was an encouragement to those in the church that found themselves in similar circumstances. We've seen the, the crossless hoarding. We've seen the crossless fraud. And the third of the rapid-fire combination of punches that James levels against the unbelieving rich is found in verse 5. He indicts them of, of crossless self-indulgence. Let's take a look at verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. The description James uses here that we have translated for us luxury uh, is, is a word that literally means delicately. You have lived on the earth delicately, it would read literally. Uh, in other words, soft or pampered or comfortable. You kind of get this feel that, they're, that they don't want to break a nail, that when you shake their hand, their hands are soft, you know, nice and plush. Um, while all four of these charges against the rich apply today, uh, I, it, to me, this indictment seems most poignant in our culture. Self-indulgence seems to be the American way. We as an entire culture value comfort, we value recreation, we value luxury, we value a delicate life, and not only do we value such things, we pursue such things as a desired end, believing the lie that when we're rich, when we're comfortable, when we're living in luxury, we have to some extent been successful. James identifies such selfish indulgence as crossless. 
as Christless. That is living without recognition of the sacrifice of Christ made on our behalf. That we as believers might emulate in our interaction with one another and in our interaction with the lost world. There's no room for self-indulgence when a brother is in need. Right? I love the picture. I love the picture that he gives uh, toward the end of verse 5 to kind of solidify what he's saying, his accusation. He says, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Now, in my 35 years on earth, I, uh, I have slaughtered and butchered and dressed and skinned more animals than most Americans. Um, one of the things that you'll notice when you're doing these things is uh, you can easily tell the difference between a wild animal and a domesticated animal, whether it be a cat or a... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll use an example of a turkey. To start with, uh, last year I shot a turkey with my bow, and, and uh, I was all excited, you know, I'm like, we're going to have a good Thanksgiving, so I butchered this turkey up, and I started pulling all the feathers off, and I'm like, after all the feathers came off, I'm like, where's the turkey, you know, it's just this skinny, scrawny little bird, and uh, I'm like, where's the turkey, I'm used to this big plump, you know, big turkey that you find in the, in the grocery store. Um, the, the difference between a wild animal and a, and a domesticated animal is that wild animals usually don't have very much fat on them. Uh, and there's a reason for that. It's because they have to fight to survive. They've got a difficult life. They are running from predators. They are searching high and low for food. And uh, so they don't, they, don't, uh, they don't build a lot of fat stores in their bodies. And so uh, I have on... on, on uh, at one occasion in my life, had the opportunity to butcher a cow. And uh, it was a rather tragic circumstance. The cow got out of the fence and a car hit the cow. And so, um, by the way, you don't want to hit a cow with your car. Uh, but we, we, we butchered the cow right there on the spot. We hung that big heifer up by, by, the, by the back legs. <laughs> And uh, gutted that thing and, and, and butchered it right there on the spot with, a, with a, you know, it hanging from the front end loader of a tractor. Um, that's just what, I mean, what, what do you want to do now? Well, <laughs> what are you going to do? Uh, <laughs> and I remember distinctly the, very, you know, the, the vast difference in, 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 uh, in the meat. You saw that marbled fat laced all throughout those steaks. And it was a sign that that cow had lived a sedentary lifestyle. You know, he or she, um, she didn't have to work for her food. She was fed. And uh, she was prepared in such a way as to be eaten later on and became a, a delicious ribeye steak. And, and James here points in a picture for us that, that he speaks directly to the, the culture of the day, the agrarian culture. He, he says the rich are like those those choice herd animals whose life is deliberately made easy so that they grow nice and fat and juicy. The rich in their self-indulgence have fattened their hearts, the text says, in a day of slaughter. And their doom is just as sure 
as the fate of that domesticated animal ready for the table. Finally and fourthly, the, the, the last blow that James levels against the unbelieving rich, he accuses them of a crossless injustice. A crossless injustice. Let's look at verse 6. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The rich and their selfish hoarding, their crossless, fraudulent actions against the, the poor, their crossless self-indulgence, they extend their wickedness even to the point of, of committing the ultimate injustice. Not only the condemnation of an innocent man, but even the murder of the innocent. Uh, the ultimate injustice here. James uses the description of the victim of the injustice as a righteous person. The righteous person. And this person does not resist. At the end of these six verses, uh, we have here a, a guilty as charged bunch of unbelieving rich people. The unbelieving rich stand guilty as charged. They are guilty of crossless hoarding. They're guilty of crossless fraud, of crossless self-indulgence, of crossless injustice. And the key witness against them is not James, although that would be the easiest thing to think of. James here is just acting as one who is reading off a list of charges. He is acting like, like a prophet in the Old Testament who is calling it down woes upon pagan nations. He, he's just reading off this list of indictments. The key witness who, who seals their fate is a particular righteous man. One in whom no sin was found. One who, though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor so that we through his poverty might be, might be made rich. One who was led like a lamb to slaughter. Who opened not his mouth. Who did not resist. One who died on a cross so that sinners like you and like me might be justified, forgiven, made right before the eyes of a holy God. It's this God-man, this Christ Jesus, who stands in condemnation of the crossless, Christless rich who live their lives hoarding and defrauding and indulging and murdering the weak and the poor. And it is He, the God-man, Christ Jesus, who calls all who believe on His name to live a life of cruciform wisdom. To live as those who have cross-shaped bank accounts. Who live not for our own pleasure, not for our own security, but who live for the glory of one infinitely greater than us. And for the good of others, others as well. So we've seen in our text four examples of crossless bank accounts. What does it look like to have a cruciform bank account? Well, instead of hoarding, as was James' first indictment, instead of amassing a great wealth for our own security and satisfaction, Jesus calls us to live lives that emulate the sacrifice of the cross. He calls us to give just like He has given. And to do so with joy, knowing that we're not storing up treasures here on earth, but we're storing up treasures where? In heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy. 
He calls us to conduct business with fairness and honesty rather than frauding uh, the laborers. Not, not defrauding the laborer, but, but meeting needs with gracious hearts of love for our neighbor. Jesus calls us away from a life of self-indulgence to a life of self-sacrifice for the sake of our brothers and sisters in our body and for the sake of the poor whom he says will always be among us. He calls us to love, to uphold justice as those who are recipients of God's ultimate justice, namely the justice that crucified and crushed his own son so that we who believe in him might be justified. The cruciform wisdom that Jesus calls us to live out places the cross at the very center of our lives. Every aspect of our lives has to be shaped by that cross. And I don't know about you, but I'm a lot like Silas James, who, who, would, uh, who would gladly say, Jesus changes everything in my life, but I'm not going to let go of this $5 bill. I'm a lot like Silas. Um, I don't want to give up certain things. I don't want to give up my bank account. It's easy to sing, you know, I surrender all, except my money, except my delicate lifestyle, my comforts. Jesus calls us to a cruciform wisdom, cross-shaped wisdom, trusting not in wealth, not in what we can hold, what we can do, what we can grasp, but in Him, in Him alone. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. And the voice of Jesus Christ cries out of the pages of James's letter, and He says, sell your possessions. Give the proceeds to the poor and follow Me. That's what He calls us to. And that's what a cruciform bank account looks like. <clears throat> well, we in intentionally didn't have an offering until now, and I realize, you know, Sunday evening offerings, most people give during the Sunday morning offering, and you probably didn't come tonight prepared to give, but uh, I don't really care, and that's not the point of having an offering now, we're not looking for more money. I think perhaps the greatest offering that we can give tonight is just a simple acknowledgement before God uh, to say, Lord, I trust you, and uh, we're going to sing a simple song here, that's a, one of the older praise songs. We probably haven't sung this song in years here at Ashland, but you might know it. It's that simple song, Lord, you're more precious than silver. And uh, so I want to pray for us now as we respond with an offering. And uh, as the ushers come forward, we will take that offering up.